Hello, my name is Lauren Patterson, your host and guiding light to self-love. I am the author of Amazon bestseller, Freeing Your Heart for Love, and founder of a nonprofit to help people challenged with abuse and depression. The intention of this podcast show is to inspire and encourage you through my experiences and those of my guests that you can discover self-love and true happiness for yourself. My guest today is Dr. Russ Kennedy. Dr. Russ Kennedy, aka the Anxiety MD, specializes in the art and neuroscience of helping people recover from anxiety disorders. He knows anxiety from the inside out as he developed his own anxiety disorder as a result of growing up with a dad with severe schizophrenia. Dr. Kennedy has degrees in advanced training in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. But it's not all science, as he is also a certified yoga and meditation teacher and was a professional stand-up comedian for over a decade. No joke. In his award-winning book and audiobook, Anxiety Rx, he shows a practical, actionable program for anxiety relief that incorporates a combination of the latest in neuroscience with the grounding wisdom of the body, with the ultimate goal of relieving the anxious thoughts of the mind. Using neuroscience, Think the Body Keeps the Score, and blending that science with a more artistic approach, he learned through living at a temple in India, taking psychedelics and being a natural and gifted intuitive. Dr. Kennedy gives a unique and never-before-seen understanding of what anxiety truly is. Hi, Dr. Russ. Hey, Lorraine. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing fabulous. Thank you for being a guest on the show. You are more than welcome. We appreciate your time, and we appreciate you showing up to love today. Yeah. <laughs> so, Always got time for love. Yes. So can you share, I know that you grew up in a environment where your dad had severe schizophrenia. Can you share what it was like to grow up in that kind of environment? Yeah, I guess it was kind of chaotic and uncertain. I mean, for the first probably 10 years of my life, my dad was fine. You know, I think he had a couple episodes, but, you know, before 10 years old, you don't really notice as a kid. Uh, but after about 10, 11, 12, I started to really notice that there was something not quite right about him. So there was a lot of, of chaos. There was a lot of um, the family kind of revolved around how, how well he was doing at any one point. So I think my brother and I kind of felt left out in a lot of ways because even when he was doing well, which he would do for like six to 12 months, at least early on, Mm-hmm. Um, there was always this sense of like, oh, he's doing pretty well this week. Oh, he's not having such a great week. It's like all the attention kind of went into him as opposed to, you know, going into the kids where it should. Mm-hmm. And did he get treatment like during that time or did he ever find yeah, his happiness? I, yeah, I think that, you know, the treatments um, for schizophrenia are still not that great. Mm-hmm. You know, they involve mostly medications that kind of just numb people out. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I would see him a lot just be kind of, you know, zombied out, especially when he got back from a, a stint in the hospital, you know, he'd be pretty drugged. And then they would kind of titrate the drugs back a little bit. So he wouldn't be quite as out of it. But um, yeah, the, you know, they don't really have good even today, they don't have really good dr- drug mm-hmm. treatments for schizophrenia. Yeah. And I know that from that type of environment, you also um, were suffering from an anxiety disorder. So when did you realize that you had this? Like at what age? And 
Well, I, around 19, I knew I wasn't, you know, I knew I was more nervous than I should be. I didn't really know that I had anxiety specifically, mm-hmm. you know. And then once I got into medical school, you know, so I was around, I guess, 25 or 26. I did pre-med at the mm-hmm. University of Victoria. And I started noticing then, like, I really had this fixation on, you know, getting good grades because I knew I had to get, like, straight A's to get into medical school. And I think that's when the anxiety really started. And I started becoming really aware that this is what it was. You know, there was this kind of compulsive need to get good grades and, you know, the other thing was I was completely paranoid about getting my father's illness as well, because there is a genetic component to both schizophrenia and bipolar, because he had bipolar as well as schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. I was wondering about that, because I'm not familiar too much with schizophrenia, but that is tends to be genetics. There, there's a more, there's a, there's a, a bigger genetic component to schizophrenia than there is to just about any of the other mental illnesses for mm-hmm. sure. So mm-hmm. yeah, there, there's a bigger component to that than say there would be with anxiety. Anxiety has a, has a much less genetic part than say schizophrenia or even bipolar. Bipolar is a little more, more genetic than right. uh, anxiety for sure. And so when you started like med school, did you start like researching how to tackle these types of challenges with anxiety? You know, I mostly just tried to get therapy myself. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of it was talk therapy. Uh, I got put on different medications. They seemed to help a little bit, but not really that much. It was mostly, you know, I was so busy with med school. I didn't have a lot of time mm-hmm. to be all that anxious, even though I was anxious for sure. Yeah. But I think because you get a real um, distinct focus in your life in medical school, you really don't do a whole lot of anything else. Right. And did that, did, um, what inspired you to become a doctor? Was it part of what you went through and what you're, what you went through with your dad? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, there was part of the, the impotence of seeing him, you know, going through such pain and suffering and just being helpless. You know, I thought that if I could become a doctor, that I would have some sort of power over illness. And what I failed to recognize was that, you know, I'd be faced with people who were sick every single day. And a lot of times there wasn't a lot of things I could do about that. I could help them in some ways. But, you know, the word cure is very rarely used in allopathic medicine. It's usually symptom management. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And I, and you wrote this amazing award-winning book called Anxiety Rx. Um, can you share what this book is about and some key takeaways that someone could receive from this book? Yeah, I wrote it because it was my own journey through anxiety and just trying all sorts of different therapies like psychiatrists and psychologists and EMDR and ACT and CBT and all this kind of stuff that never really seemed to help me. So what I did was I went into the psychedelics. So I went, I took LSD, ayahuasca, psilocybin, you know, not to get high, but just to see if I could, you know, get some relief from this anxiety or get some insight from it. And the psychedelics themselves didn't really heal me, but they did show me a path that my, what I called my anxiety in my mind was really the sense of old alarm, this old trauma that was held in my body and Mm -hmm. the mind being a compulsive meaning-making, make-sense machine, it would read this alarm that was sort of stuck in my body from my childhood and just create stories and worries that were completely consistent with that feeling of alarm. So I would have this alarm in my system from my old trauma as a child, and that would 
agitate the worries of my mind. And the worries of my mind would, of course, agitate the alarm in my system. And it became this cycle, this alarm anxiety cycle that I talk about in the book. And just realizing that your anxiety probably isn't in your mind at all. It's probably just reflected by your mind. It's more this old trauma that's unresolved in your body. And again, it's a construct, of course, you know, saying alarm is stored in the body or emotion or pain is stored in the body. There's some controversy about that, but it's it's getting to be more and more widely regarded that the body does play a huge role in this alarm um, paradigm. So that, so that when the body holds all this trauma, the mind has to do something with it. And usually what it does it just creates worries, which of course mm-hmm. creates more alarm. So you get caught in this cycle. So I talk about healing the alarm, which, you know, showing up and loving your younger self, showing up and loving that child in me that, you know, felt abandoned, that just didn't feel like he was connected to his parents in a lot of ways, Uh, giving him the love now that I didn't get back then. I love that. Yeah, because I'm doing a lot of, I just turned 50 this year, and I'm doing a lot of um, inner child healing right now, like at this young age. (laughs) Better late than never, baby. Yeah. And what I started doing is I do a lot of guided meditations. And um, I started in 2020. And it has been life changing and transforming for me and um, such a freeing type of feeling I have. But I'm doing this like 40 day challenge where it's working with your third eye if you know the chakras and yeah, I feel like, like my energy, I've only been, I'm only on day four, but my yeah. energy, Dr. Russ has been like, at, like through the roof. Like I'm so happy I like little things don't bother me. Um, you know, I don't let those thoughts come into my head, but I'm trying to, um, set the intention to heal that inner child stuff yeah, that I'm still that's working the on. Root, that's the root cause of, uh, certainly anxiety and probably a lot of the other mental disorders as well, but certainly mm-hmm. anxiety. Yeah. Is this, uh, you know, disconnection from self, because I do think that when we're younger, we get a trauma that's too much for our little minds to bear. Mm-hmm. You know, Freud would call it repression. We repress it down into the unconscious and the body is a representation of the unconscious mind. So if we find this alarm in our body, I espouse that that alarm is actually our younger self. And if we yeah. can connect with that alarm that's in our body, a lot of people feel it around their heart or the throat or the belly. We can connect with that, that alarm. We can connect with the younger version of ourselves. And that's the part that's the child in us is the part that needs the healing. That's what's mm-hmm. causing the problem in the first place. So if we heal it at its source, we don't have to worry so much about doing all this cognitive therapy. Although cognitive therapy is important. It helps for sure, mm-hmm. but it's not going to heal you. What's going to heal you is going in, finding that wounded child in you and bringing them back into the present moment and showing them that they're seen, heard and loved. That's how we heal. Yeah. And why do you think, like just a quick little side note here, because I, I thought about this while you were speaking is why do you think some people can't remember their childhood. Is that just because of the traumatic experiences we tend to like block them out? Well, there's a neuroscientific reason for it. And one is that we have two main structures in our brain that encode memories. One's called the hippocampus, which Mm -hmm. the hippocampus kind of is the more analytical of the two. It kind of time date stamps our memories. And the other one's the amygdala. The amygdala is a very powerful encoder of memories, but it has no sense of time. And the amygdala really focuses on emotional memories. Mm. So what happens is that when we are younger and traumatized and we secrete all this cortisol and adrenaline in our system because we're traumatized, 
that paralyzes the hippocampus. So the hippocampus mm. can't do its normal time date stamp feature on our trauma. So, but the amygdala sure does. So the amygdala has no sense of time. So when some of these traumas come back into our awareness, they don't feel like they're coming from the past. They feel like they're still happening because the mm. hippocampus didn't get in there and kind of time date stamp them like, no, this happened back, you know, 30 years ago. And they don't feel like memories. They feel like they're still happening. And that's, you know, flashbacks, PTSD, all that kind of stuff comes from this amygdala only kind of, you know, encoding and, and processing. So mm -hmm. that's why a lot of people, I did a whole post on this uh, on Instagram about why people don't have childhood memories. Oh. And it's really, uh, it's one of the more popular posts on my Instagram because yeah. most of the people that I talk to with chronic anxiety don't have a lot of memories from their childhood because of exactly that. They had so much cortisol and epinephrine running around in their system that they paralyzed one of the memory encoders. And mm. so you get amygdala only processing. So you will encode the memory but you, you won't be able to retrieve it. So that's one of the things. So we'll encode these memories of our, our painful childhood, but we won't be able to remember them. They're in there. We just don't mm -hmm. have the process to bring them out. So do you think that, like that. So, yeah. do you think it's worth to like try to remember so that people can heal? Because I'm, I think I'm asking for my own selfish reasons right now, because I really don't remember things before I was the age of 16, really. Okay. Just little memories here and there. But I'm wondering, like, just for those listening too, and, and I'm going to go back and look at your Instagram post, because this is really fascinating to me is why I always asked myself, why don't I remember? Yeah. And I'm just wondering if, is it possible to like heal that? Or do you recommend that people really explore that to go into their healing journey? Well, as you go into the alarm in your system, as you find where it is in your body, and that's one of the things I do with people is I, I take them into their trauma, not the worst mm -hmm. trauma of their life, but, but one of their traumas. And I say, well, where do you feel that in your physiology? Where, where, mm -hmm. where do you get the sensation of that you know, your dad was never home or your mom was always drunk? Like, where do you get that sensation? And they'll say, oh, it's, you know, it's in my chest. And then I'll say, does it have a temperature? Does it have a color? What size is it? You know, and I'm speeding this up quite a bit, but it's like, oh, it's kind of a hot sensation. It's about the size of my fist. It's, it's, it feels like a pressure or a pain, and it pushes back into my into my spine. So people can describe their alarm quite well if you direct them to it. And often, when they when they go deeper and deeper into the description of their physiological alarm, a lot of sensations, images, memories will come back to them when they mm -hmm. do that, which mm -hmm. is sometimes not pleasant, right? So you have to do this in a very um, compassionate, slow, kind way. But it's mm -hmm. really about bringing those old unconscious memories back to the surface so that you can heal them. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I know that was a condensed version, but <laughs> thank you. Like, I appreciate really that. Yeah. Um, so I know that you, I find this very interesting. You were a stand-up comedian for over a decade. <laughs> I was. Yeah. And yeah, I've heard you share a couple jokes, I think, in Clubhouse. Um, but can you share some of your favorite lines with us or like when you, you were know, a comedian what was the most popular funny you know because the thing about stand-up is people people think it's about jokes it's really not it's really about making a relationship with the audience which takes mm -hmm. some time you know yeah. and comedians don't actually tell jokes because if you look at the way a joke is structured it's like okay uh you know two people walk into a bar yeah. Then this happens then this happens again and then the third time is the punchline right now that takes about you know, a minute to a minute and a half to tell that joke, that that sort of stock joke. 
And yeah. as comedians, if you're going 90 seconds with a laugh, you are, you're in trouble, you know? So right. it is one of those things about developing a relationship. And I used to have this one kind of bit that I would do about, uh, I would say, oh, my girlfriend and I just broke up and they, the audience would go, oh, you know, like, no, <laughs> yeah. it's okay. It's okay. It was a, it was a mutual thing. We both got together and decided that we didn't like me. Uh <laughs> so, so that's one of the jokes. So there's, and there's some yeah. tags on that and that kind of thing too. But again, it depends on my relationship with my audience. Like if I, right. if I go up there first and I say that I might get a decent laugh, but if I wait until they like me and they're, they're sort of, they're invested in my life and they know, you know, that I'm a doctor who does in the daytime and who does comedy at night and I've got them on my side and I start talking about things that didn't go so well in my life. They kind of like that. I mean, we have a saying in comedy, what's bad for your life is good for your comedy. So it's, you know, it is one of those things that uh, I loved having that sort of right brain release because being a doctor, a medical doctor is very left brained and analytical. And, you know, having that escape was really nice. It's hard for me sometimes, like when I do podcasts or whatever, and I get into my little anxiety neuroscientist brain because my humor brain is on the other side. It's on the right side. And often the two sides fight with each other. So when I get into sort of expressing sort of analytical stuff about how the hippocampus works and the amygdala and the bed nucleus, the stride terminalis and all this kind of stuff, my, my comedy brain kind of shuts off because I go into the left, that, that left brain analytical. I would like to be a lot more entertaining, a lot more funny. <laughs> it's just that it just, it's two parts of my brain and, and they don't often, you know, they don't cohabitate. One yeah. tends to take over. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen, um, there's a show on Netflix with Jerry Seinfeld called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Yep. Seen many of them. Yep. So did you see the one with Ellen where he asked Ellen, what was your first um, stand up show? I think so. I remember seeing said, the one with Ellen because she, yeah, they got, they, she they got that weird car that they put her in. Yeah, the the Jeep, I think it was, yeah. and um, the yellow one, I think. And he asked her what what made me think when you're sharing is he asked her, like, what did you do? And she said, well, I got up there, I had like a hamburger and, and some food, and I just ate my food the whole time. <laughs> yeah. She's naturally funny, too. Like, she's yeah. naturally, and I think a lot of comedy comes from trauma. I really do. I mean, my fellow comedians, I, they a lot of them had trauma in their backgrounds. And mm -hmm. I think when you when you grow up with trauma in a certain way, you have to look at the world in a very different way than most people do. And yeah. I think comedy comes from that. I think comedy is basically showing people a different way of looking at things that they've been sort of taking for granted their whole life. And Seinfeld's like a master at that. Like he's a right. master at sort of taking what's normal and making it making it ridiculous. You know, yeah. or taking what's ridiculous and making it look normal. I mean, that's a lot of what comedy is, is just flipping reality on its head. Yeah. I mean, the show, like when I saw the name, I was like, oh, my God, that is so catchy. And it just makes sense. And all the coffee he was drinking, it was just really mm -hmm. funny just to even watch. <laughs> yeah. I like the one with Alec Baldwin the best. That's, that's I got to see that one. I, I have to great. go through them. And yeah. I think he had and Eddie like, Murphy is great, too. Eddie yeah. Murphy Eddie Murphy. Great. I want to watch yeah. that one. So I'm going to get back to that. Um but yeah, thank you for sharing that. So I love, thank you so much for your time again, but I, I love this last question. I ask every guest this, how will you show up in love for yourself and for others? Well, I do this thing every morning when I first wake up is, is I go back and I find that frightened kid who was, you know, watching his dad every day, wondering if he was going to go crazy on that particular day. And I just love him. I just, you know, 
draw them in close to me, like mentally and that kind of thing. In that first sort of five minutes when you first wake up and your your unconscious is still with you, like you know, that sort of dreamy like unconscious mind is still with you and you haven't got really into your sort of conscious day about like nine, 10, 12, what am I doing today? Like that really kind of dreamlight state, we call it hypnagogic state and where you're, you know, you're suggestible. And that's when I go and find him every day and I connect with him and I, I reassure him about, you know, what's going on in our life this day. And I also reassure him that he's not back there anymore because a lot of, you know, this amygdala only processing, what I was talking about earlier on, it, it does transport you back to that place. So when we get really alarmed, I believe that we get transported, at least part of us does, back to the time of our original trauma, back to the time of our original wounding. So it's just showing him in no uncertain terms that he's not back there anymore, mm-hmm. you know, because part of him believes that, you know, we are still back there. But I show him that, uh, you know, he's loved, he's cared for, he holds the best part of me, like his sensitivity that I used to really um, be ashamed of, I think, as a, as a boy, you know, being sensitive that kind of thing uh, has become my greatest gift as I get older. You know, it's really yeah. provided me with a nice living. It's it's allowed me to write a, a wonderful book, you know. So I really thank him for the sensitivity because at the time that sensitivity, you know, got us sort of bullied or ridiculed or whatever. Not mm-hmm. always, but but it was certainly part of it. So it's just, you know, recognizing that he holds the best part of me and just showing him that he's seen, heard, and loved. That's really basically what I do every morning. Wow. I love that. That, that, reminds me of like, you just the sensitivity you talked about, I think for me, it was always the love, like I was always looking for love in all the wrong places. But I never lost that love in that little girl. Mm -hmm. And now the love is just amplified, but it's, it's going to places that are good for me, my highest good and for those of others. But it's like mostly for myself, like I truly love myself now. Finally, yeah. I could say that. <laughs> and that's what heals anxiety. It really like we, mm-hmm. we heal from anxiety with love. You know, we yeah. can, we can do cognitive thinking processes and we can, we can do all these other sort of cognitive rejigs to say, Oh, this worry isn't real or whatever. But really it comes down to connecting with that wounded inner child, which is the source of the alarm, which is the source of the anxiety in the first place. So mm-hmm. love is what heals us. And that's why I, I get a little upset at people going, well, why isn't this science based? And I always ask people, well, what science got to do with love? You yeah. Know, we can't study love scientifically. We just can't right. we don't even know what it is. We can't even define it. <laughs> yeah. And if love is what heals you, how good is science? And I love neuroscience. Get, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But it's like, I don't see science really helping people heal that mm-hmm. much. I, I, you mm-hmm. know, I see them helping improve their lives in a lot of other ways. But as far as the emotional component, that has to be person to person. It, yes. it has nothing to do with science. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Well, I'm glad I'm on the right path. <laughs> Seems like um, it. Yeah, I feel I feel great. I mean, like I said, I mean, turning 50 has been the best thing of my whole entire life besides my boys having my boys. But yeah, I feel great. But great. so Dr. Russ, how can people find you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, just uh, the anxiety MD, like that's but not the anxiety doctor, the anxiety MD, and that's my Instagram handle at the anxiety MD. That's probably the where I do most of my work these days is Instagram, but my okay. website is the anxiety MD, Twitter's the anxiety MD, everything is the so if you just Google the anxiety MD, I'm all over there. Are you going to? Uh, are you on TikTok? Yeah, a little bit. 
a little bit. I think, <laughs> you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to really focus my energy on Instagram right now, yeah. and kind of stuff, and then maybe branch into TikTok as far right. as that kind of stuff goes. But there, there's just so many ways to go right now. Too, yeah, there you know? is. And there I'm really doing. A, I'm doing a podcast with Mel Robbins uh, next week. <gasps> That's so, awesome. Yeah. So you know, she's got a pretty big audience. So yeah. So uh, and, you know, I've just helped uh, Mel Robbins kind of understand anxiety a little bit more and that kind of wow. thing. Wow. That was kind of fun, actually, doing doing that. So uh, I think she's got a new podcast on Sirius XM. So comes That's out on awesome. October the sixth. So it'll be yeah, it'll be nice to be out to a very wide audience. So I'm trying to get myself ready for the for the the issues that might come with that. That's so amazing, and thank you. I'm honored you were you're on my show. I'm not yeah, a big podcaster, to. but you know, I'm just trying to get more people on here to yeah. promote more love. I think we all need to do our, our bit, you know, and I think that's why society is having such a rough time right now is I think people are more pulling away from themselves rather than, you know, actually doing what would really help. And I, and I think yeah. it's, it's such an automatic and reflexive, protective response. And I think we need to kind of counter that and, and become more connected. And that's what's going to save us. If we come, if we keep splitting apart from each other, it's going to be a pretty rough ride for the next 10 or 15 years. Thank you so much, Dr. Russ. You are more than welcome, Marie. Thank you for joining me today. I encourage you to come back for more love and inspiration. If you love this podcast show, please like and leave a review. Follow me on Instagram at showupandlove to be updated on the upcoming shows. Until next time, remember to love each other and choose love every day.